I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Hi, I'm John Moser. I am chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Ashland University. I'd like to welcome you to another edition of the American Idea podcast. And today we're going to be talking about World War II, specifically the rise of the Soviet Union to world power and the role that the United States played in that. U.S. relations with Russia have been very much on the mind of uh, the American people uh, in the last several years since Russia has been trying very hard to reassert itself as a global power. And um, obviously, this is most the case in the war with Ukraine, which is now in its second year. But Russia, listeners may be interested to know, only really became a world power in the middle of the 20th century as a result of the Second World War. And it did so with substantial help, it turns out, from the United States. And to talk about this, I'm happy to introduce our guest, Sean McMeekin, who is Francis Flournoy Professor of European History and Culture at Bard College in uh, Annandale on Hudson, New York. Uh, Dr. McMeekin, uh, Sean, if you don't mind, uh, holds a, a BA in history from Stanford, an MA and PhD from the University of California at Berkeley. He has done a postdoc at Yale. Uh, he has taught at, uh, at, at a couple of universities in Ankara and in Istanbul, Turkey. Sean is author of eight books, including uh, most more recently, the, the Russian Origins of the First World War, July 1914, Countdown to War, The Ottoman Endgame, War, Revolution, and the Making of the Modern Middle East, The Russian Revolution, A New History, and most recently, this book, Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. It is, as you see, a substantial work. Uh, it is also a work uh, that's extremely well-written, uh, as well as uh, demonstrates a great erudition. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed reading this, and ever since I read it, I said I want to. I want to have him uh, on this uh, on this program. Welcome, Sean. I'm so glad you could be with us. Well, thanks for having me on, John, and thanks for that very kind introduction. I, I see you have the paperback there. It's true. The hardcover actually is is so heavy. I was having trouble with it myself a few <laughs> years ago. I had a bit of tendonitis in the elbow, and <laughs> it is a big book. It's the longest I, one I've. Read. I can see that. Well, yeah, I want to talk today about how in, in, a, in a relatively short period of time, Russia went from being a, a regional power, which of course it had been for centuries, uh, to a truly world power in really over the course of probably no more than, than five years or so. 
but especially uh, we our uh, listeners are interested in the role that the United States played in this uh, in this process. Um, so maybe we could just talk uh, start by talking about the ways uh, or the relations between the United States and the Soviet Union before the Roosevelt administration, right? From the time of the revolution, so Harding and, well, Wilson and Harding and Coolidge and Hoover. What can you say about that? Well, it's interesting that U.S.-Russian relations, I suppose, have been on, were already on a collision course, you might say, even in the immediate aftermath of the Russian Revolution. Some of that is because the U.S. was then an associated power, not technically an ally of the so-called Entente powers, France and Britain. And they tended to view after Lenin came to power and almost immediately they kind of sued the central powers, including Imperial Germany, for an armistice. Lenin was actually viewed in the Entente camp as kind of a German agent. And so mm-hmm. there was a little bit of a hostility seeing because Russia kind of dropped out of the war, made a peace with Germany against the wishes of her allies. Um, but in the course of the next year or so, a kind of ideological a struggle, almost a one-upmanship, uh, actually emerged very early on. Um, back, uh, not a lot of uh, uh, kind of your casual student of U.S. history might have heard of the 14 points of Woodrow Wilson. They may not know that they were issued in part in response mm-hmm. as early as this is, of course, early January 1918 uh, to a kind of public relations diplomatic maneuver of of uh, the Bolsheviks. This is actually Trotsky who was behind it. Trotsky was the first. They they had new titles too. He was Commissar for Foreign Affairs instead of Foreign Minister. And, and he obtained copies of these secret documents, secret diplomacy, one of the things that Wilson famously denounced. But the Bolsheviks kind of got out there first. They actually exposed, among other things, the secret agreement to carve up the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. And this really embarrassed uh, France and Britain uh, because it, it exposed some of their machinations and their secret agreements. And, and Wilson felt a little bit like he was he had been upstaged almost. I mean, you know, he's supposed to be the, the president of the world's leading republic, well, constitutional republic. Now we just call it a democracy. That might not have been what everyone called it back then, but certainly a leading power of this kind of democratic republic um, who's going to war supposedly for ideal reasons and now here come the Bolsheviks and they're denouncing secret treaties and they're embarrassing the imperialistic allies and and Wilson then almost immediately this this uh, debate over things like uh, self-determination as it was called it was kind of almost a, a propaganda struggle so in the early years the U.S., uh, for a lot of people, became a kind of a beacon of hope of the constitutional liberal democratic order, even though the U.S. disengaged from Europe progressively after the war. The Bolsheviks, they they set up an alternative vision. It was, in many ways, equally anti-imperialist. That was part of their rhetorical arsenal. Um, but, of course, they were also anti-capitalist. So, you know, they're denouncing world capitalism and claiming to be on the side of the proletariat, the oppressed. Um, so even going back to 1918, 1919, there was something of an ideological struggle. But it's as far as actual on the ground relations, which I think was the subject of your question, um, the U- United States did not recognize the Bolshevik government as legitimate. In fact, it was was one of the later powers to do so. Did not actually recognize the Soviet government as legitimate until 1933. If I could just interrupt you, how much did the U.S. government or, and, or the, the U.S. public, for that matter, know the nature of the Soviet regime or what was going on in Russia? Well, I would say the general U.S. public probably didn't know a whole lot about what was going on on the ground in Russia. The U.S. had intervened, not particularly decisively, but in the ongoing Russian civil war, there were U.S. troops, particularly in Siberia, among other places, and in the Soviet Far East. 
East. Um, there were some Americans who had some experience on the ground of Russia, and there was even a, a vigorous debate in Congress, the so-called irreconcilables, who were also against the signing of, of the Versailles Treaty. Many of them were also critical of the U.S. intervention in Russia. Mm. Uh, but there was a lot of, I think, misunderstanding. Even Wilson himself had this misunderstanding or apprehension of the so-called whites of the Civil War. He thought they were trying to restore the monarchy of, of the Tsars, which is not actually what they were fighting for. They were fighting to restore store the, the the deposed constituent assembly with which the Bolsheviks had deposed by force. So I think there was a lot of misunderstanding about what was happening. And then because there were no direct relations, aside from a few kind of rogue and renegade businessmen, people like the somewhat notorious Armand Hammer, who went over and tried to sign some deals in Soviet Russia, I think for the most part, you know, there was a lot of ignorance about what was happening there. Again, people in the State Department were, were trying to study it and they were kind of collecting materials. But uh, eventually, and I do discuss this in my book, and in, in after recognition in the 1930s, it became somewhat of a problem for Roosevelt, who was trying to cultivate relations with the Soviets, that a lot of the people in the State Department, the people who were best informed, really, about the Soviet Union, were also the most critical. That is, they they probably had the best knowledge of what was really happening inside the Soviet Union. Okay. Um, you know, and, and, and this really mattered, because I think in the end, the, the kind of the struggle over the perception of, of the Soviet Union becomes uh, both a political football, but also it, it plays a real role in influencing U.S. foreign policy in the 30s and 40s. Gotcha. So over the course of the 1920s, uh, at least within the United States, the, the Soviet Union is regarded as a as a pariah nation, as I suppose it was through much of the world, although eventually lots of lots of other countries recognize the Soviet mm -hmm. regime. But the United but the United States holds off. And it's not until uh, it's not until Roosevelt becomes president that there's a serious effort in this direction. Why was FDR interested in doing this? And and, and how did yeah, how did he view the Soviet Union? Well, I, I think he, he certainly was was ignorant of the true state of affairs on the ground. But as far as what he was hoping to accomplish, it's a little bit like what uh, the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George had done back in 1921 when Britain herself opened. It was not initially a formal recognition. It was a so-called trade accord. And and then they were dealing with the post-World War I depression, and he was hoping to open up the Russian market. And I I think Roosevelt had the similar idea that there was this kind of almost irrational anti-communist prejudice that was holding up warmer relations uh, with the Soviets. And, and the U.S. obviously was then in the throes of the Great Depression. And so the idea was maybe we can Im improve economic uh, performance and put people to work, hopefully either trading with or supplying things to the Soviet Union. What he didn't really understand was that there actually were already a lot of Americans who had been hired by the Soviet government, many engineers, um, a lot of skilled workers. And there were already a lot of American firms operating in the Soviet Union. Actually, a, a lot of the great industrial projects of the so-called five-year plan uh, inaugurated, backdated to 1928 by, by Stalin, uh, they were actually American firms. So it's not that the Americans weren't on the ground in the Soviet Union. The, the real thing which held up larger, more profitable trade relations was just that the Soviets had so impoverished the country, they couldn't really pay for um, a larger scale of trade. And the other thing holding it up, and the thing that Roosevelt rather kind of downplayed uh, were the debts. The Soviets or the Bolsheviks back then had repudiated all of the old corporate and government and municipal debts of Imperial Russia. So this it was the largest default in financial history. The U.S. was by no means the, the largest investor in Russia. The French actually lost a lot more. The British lost a lot more. But because they had defaulted, this was also they were in default. So there were also reasons mm -hmm. that the U.S. might have wanted to hold off on formalizing relations. Um, 
I know to be fair to the Soviets, Britain also defaulted on her World War One debts. So it was not only the Soviets, you know, who were in this pickle. But as I said, Roosevelt, he kind of thought, look, if we just break the ice, as he put it, you know, then supposedly, I think it's a little bit like what people said about China in the 90s. Like, if you open up trade relations, then, you know, you're hoping that they will also maybe liberalize their economy. I think it's a slightly naive view. Um, but there was also this angle where he's hoping to help uh, reinvigorate the U.S. economy by uh, stimulating trade. Did did Roosevelt at, at this time have any thought that that the Soviet Union might be a, a useful ally against uh, rising military powers of, of Germany and, and Japan? Oh, I think later in the decade, that's definitely true. I mean, I think in the early 30s, we tend to almost backdate this and think that everyone was obsessed with Hitler already in 1933. I think Roosevelt was thinking more about Japan. Japan had already moved into Manchuria in 1931. And it was one of the factors involved in these negotiations. The idea was that by recognizing the Soviet Union, perhaps the US could could put a little bit of pressure on Japan. The Soviets and the Japanese still eyed each other warily. They had been at war really on and off since the early part of the century. Japan had intervened in the Russian Civil War and maintained a large troop presence in the Soviet Far East really well in into the civil war as late as 1921-22. So that was definitely part of it. I think in Roosevelt at that stage, that early stage of his eventual, of course, 12-year uh, year reign in power, as we might call it, was still probably thinking more about Japan. But later in the decade, absolutely. Um, once Hitler had started making his moves on the chessboard, German rearmament was proceeding. And after um, Hitler had, uh, quote-unquote, remilitarized the Rhineland, that had sent German troops into the Rhineland in March 36, and then particularly the moves vis-a-vis uh, -vis Austria with the Anschluss and then the Sudeten Agreement at Munich in 38. Yeah, Hitler was was clearly a concern mm -hmm. of the Roosevelt administration. And, and I think th this tended to be the view of also some of the so-called fellow travelers or the members of the, the Popular Front that is not all communists, but those who are starting to sympathize with the Soviets or view them as a kind of a counterweight to Hitler. I think Ro Roosevelt definitely shared that view by the mid to late 1930s. So so, so Roosevelt pursues a, a new course toward the Soviet Union uh, for a combination of economic reasons. He sees a potential for trade. He uh, uh, he hopes that, that trade will, will liberalize the regime. And eventually he sees the, the strategic importance of an ally situated somewhere between Germany and, and and Japan, is it fair to say that by the end of the decade, those those hopes and expectations had been frustrated? Well, they're certainly frustrated with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. I think, which came as a shock as much to Roosevelt as nearly anyone else. That's when Hitler and Stalin cut this strategic deal to divide Eastern Europe into spheres of influence, including, of course, most notoriously mm -hmm. Poland, uh, but along with the Baltic states and Finland and Romania. Um, that was certainly a shock to any assumptions I think that Roosevelt and other sympathizers had about Stalin and his foreign policy. Um, but to some extent, I mean, before the molotov ribbentrop Pact, certain other events were actually playing in, into this. Again, I view it as a slightly naive, almost projection that Stalin shared this view that we needed collective security to contain Hitler. This, the, the, the idea of collective security, this is a very Western idea. At least Stalin's foreign affairs commissar Litvinov did talk about it, but Stalin himself never really talked about that. And the Spanish Civil War, which erupts in 1936, it does allow Stalin to kind of play up this uh, this 
repression because Britain and France famously kind of disengaged with and they don't really support the Republican uh, side in Spain after after Franco's uh, rebellion or counter-revolution, however one wants to define it. The Soviets did get involved in Spain and that kind of played out the idea. So at least as late as you could say into 1939, you can see why Roosevelt might have shared this slightly uh, rose-tinted view of Stalin and his foreign policy. And France had actually signed a mutual assistance pact with the Soviets in 1935. But the French had already been, I think, they, they'd gotten to know the Soviets a little better. They, they'd already been slightly disabused of this. You know, their their military attache, for example, is not even allowed to attend Soviet Red Army maneuvers. You know, they realize the Soviets don't really trust them, that they're spying on them. I think Roosevelt might have been better informed, but um, he actually sacked one of his ambassadors, Bullitt, who was too critical of, of Stalin, and, and he, he he appoints uh, Joseph Davies, who's kind of this arch out-and-out -out sympathizer. And so I think he's also misinformed about the true state of affairs in the Soviet Union. I I, I remember uh, reading George Kennan's memoirs, and he had some some choice things to say about Davies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, what about the uh, the invasion of Finland? Does that does that have a, have a significant impact on on the administration's attitude? Well, it very nearly does. Um, and some of this was because of some of the, the the material I was trying to gather on this uh, that was quite interesting. I do a lot of work in the Hoover archives at Stanford, and a lot of the files, of course, pertain to Hoover himself. And and one of them actually pertains to the Finnish Relief Fund that Hoover, among others, tried to set up on behalf of Finland after the Soviets invaded in November 1939. And the U.S., the American public, they were obviously not alone in sympathizing with Finland. It was pretty obvious. Finland's this tiny little country that gets brutally invaded by this kind of giant bully of a neighbor in the Soviet Union. And the very fact that the Finns fought so bravely and heroically and inflicted such damage on the Soviets, it became a popular cause across Europe and in the United States. I think that Hoover taking up the cause also kind of, uh, you know, got in Roosevelt's craw a little bit. And, and he eventually had to take some type of a, if not action, then at least make a statement. And he did actually denounce quite unequivocally the Soviet invasion of this infinitesimal neighbor that could have threatened her in no way, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, by February 1940, he had definitely taken a pretty strong position and Congress had begun to appropriate funds. And, you know, at least on a small scale, uh, Finland was able to raise some money and even import some fighter planes and such from the United States. Um, it definitely stopped short of well short of kind of full belligerence. And uh, one of the things that, that I looked at in this book is that I think Stalin was actually shrewd enough to realize what, what danger he and his regime were actually in in early 1940. That although the world had to some extent ignored the Soviet invasion of Poland in September 1939, because it was so focused on the German invasion of Poland and kind of Nazi and Hitlerian perfidy. Um, after the war in Poland was basically over by October 1939, the world press had nothing else to focus on but the Soviet invasion of Finland. And Stalin was actually getting some pretty serious flack in the world press. And Roosevelt's reaction, particularly because Roosevelt had been so friendly to the Soviets before then, was, I think, particularly dangerous uh, to Stalin. I mean, in the more immediate period, the short term, he was probably more worried about Britain and France intervening. And there had been these overflights of Soviet oil installations in the Caucasus. He had also been taking on intelligence from these departing American geologists, oil and gas engineers who were telling him about the danger if Britain did actually bomb uh, the Caucasian oil installations. I mean, he was he was really was terrified in that period. And as part of the backstory of what is now called the Katyn Forest Massacre, I discuss in the book, you know, Stalin reacted viscerally, both lashing out against the possibility of a Polish fifth column in his gulag camps and also 
suing for an early peace with Finland, you know, to kind of cut the legs out of the possibility of of a broad intervention against him. And and, you know, he did kind of stanch the bleeding a little bit when he came to his his image, particularly in Washington. You know, while there were obviously a lot of critics in Congress and uh, a lot of newspapers were hostile, the Roosevelt administration and we what we might call kind of liberal public opinion in kind of Washington, New York, and some of the other major uh, population centers of the Eastern Seaboard. Uh, Stalin, I think he kind of escaped now from the worst opprobrium. And if he was not viewed favorably necessarily, um, he was certainly not viewed in the same critical way as he had been during the Finnish War. So uh, clearly a turning point comes in June 1941 when uh, German forces invade the invade the Soviet Union. How does this affect U.S. foreign policy? Uh, I'll just start with that. Well, it affects it very dramatically. I mean, to some extent, it's almost this kind of public relations miracle, not just in the United States, but across the world, where the Soviets, at least for the previous really 21 months, had been effectively Hitler's partner. Uh, They've been carving up Eastern Europe, invading sovereign countries, Poland, Finland, the three Baltic states, Romania. Um, a lot of that had taken place in the summer of 1940 against the smokescreen of really the, the the Nazi invasion of France and the Low Country. So they kind of got away with it a little bit that there wasn't that much press coverage, but it wasn't exactly a secret that Hitler and Stalin were partners. And now suddenly Stalin and the Soviets are sort of the they're the great victim. You know, they are the, the sympathetic, bullied underdog who have been subject to this admittedly, yes, very brutal invasion. It wasn't just Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany had allies. So there's also this aspect of, oh, well, now you know, Finland and Romania out for revenge and, and Slovakia and Hungary have joined and there are volunteer units coming from Italy and Spain. And so there's almost this kind of multinational pro-Nazi or it's usually kind of called in shorthand fascist alliance against the Soviet Union. You know, all, all that anti fascist uh, propaganda of the 30s, which had really been somewhat misleading because the Soviets had not really been a principled anti-fascist power on the world stage. Now suddenly it seemed real. The Soviets really were being invaded by this quote-unquote fascist coalition. And while a lot of the U.S. public, and I actually looked at the stuff pretty closely, you know, did not take quite so, I think, simplistic a view of this. This was the view of Roosevelt, his advisors, particularly Harry Hopkins, that they should almost immediately open the floodgates Uh, The Lend-Lease Act had been passed in March, and there had even been a debate over whether it should apply to the Soviet Union. There had been a very vociferous Mm -hmm. debate on this very subject. The Soviets then were still Hitler's partner. Um, And in the end, Roosevelt got his own kind of almost, you might call it, open-ended version, that is, that he could apply it to the Soviets if if he chose to. Now, he didn't announce this right away. They kept a secret from the public for almost six months, that basically the the administration's ruling was that the Soviets were eligible for this aid. Initially, it was not categorized as Lend-Lease. A little bit later, it was, but it was not announced to the public. They even issued this kind of a... You know, instructions to diplomats not to talk openly about how much, you know, that Roosevelt had opened up a billion dollar credit line and a two billion dollar credit line. And, you know, these are 1941 prices. So we're talking about an immense amount of money that the U.S. has now appropriated for military aid to Stalin and, and the Red Army. And it really was kept secret from the public. And the reason they kept it secret from the public and that Roosevelt really kind of almost obfuscated whenever he was asked about this was that their own internal surveys and Hopkins ran. And a kind of and it, there were some some Gallup polls too, but they actually ran their own internal opinion surveys, and they knew that across the country uh, there was a clear majority against uh, giving Lend-Lease aid to the Soviet Union. Um, you know, later on in the war, I think they were able to shape public opinion, but at least initially they had to keep it a secret because they realized that 
even if they themselves sympathize quite broadly and openly with the Soviet Union against Hitler, that a lot of the American public, and not just in the Midwest, the, the so-called kind of isolationist heartland of America first and all that, even in states like New York and California, and they they looked there too, um, in, in most places, a clear majority was against the policy. So they had to tread very carefully. You, you, since you mentioned Harry Hopkins, one thing that really comes through in, in your book is is how immensely influential Hopkins was in promoting a pro-Soviet, a really a policy of all aid to the Soviet Union, um, which strikes me as uh, as a little unusual, given that he was not a foreign policy guy. Mm. He was a social worker who a right. long time a long time associate of, of of Roosevelt, of course, but he was he had been exclusively involved with domestic affairs. Uh, until the war. What, mm-hmm. Why did Hopkins play such an outsized role in this? Well, it's a great question. And you're right, he was initially more a protege of Eleanor. Um, that is to say, viewed as very much in this kind of sphere of social policy, social work, welfare, etc. Um, but he had become such a trusted aide of Roosevelt, presumably in in part because of, of, of him being trusted by Eleanor. And obviously, Roosevelt must have just liked him. I mean, he was basically sleeping in the Lincoln bedroom for most of the war. He was apparently one of the last people Roosevelt would see, you know, before bed and first person he would see in the morning on many occasions, if not all. Um, he was obviously trusted. He was valued. And in a curious way, taking over the Lendley's brief, which is what he did. I mean, he effectively just took over, and particularly the Soviet brief, which was absolutely his, but also the broader running of the Lendley's program. It was a little bit like a scaling up of of his New Deal responsibilities. He was kind of overseeing this gargantuan federal bureaucracy. And to some extent, I think he probably did view it a little bit as social work. The Soviets were this kind of needy beneficiary, and they were now really like the number one priority or, you know, the great client, really, of, of the Lend-Lease administration. You know, even though at times Britain might have received, at least in volume terms, more aid, a lot of the British aid was actually redirected or reassigned to the Soviet Union because their position was, of course, more desperate, uh, particularly in 1941. That did seem to be a danger that if Moscow fell, the Soviet Union might go under. Um, and yeah, as far as why he viewed the Soviet Union this way, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly agnostic. I don't think he was kind of a secret communist or something. I think he just ran in these circles of opinion where people were deeply sympathetic to the Soviet Union. He developed a personal relationship with Stalin, who seemed to like him and to trust him. And he wasn't really that subtle about it. I mean, he would give interviews with the press talking about, absolutely, I'm I'm all gung-ho for the Soviet cause, all hands on deck, all aid to the Soviet Union. Whenever criticism might come in from the State Department, um, you know, from people like Kennan or even Avril Harriman at one point, who was then ambassador to the Soviet Union, he, he, would, he would shoot it down. We will not apply conditions. No quid pro quos. No questions asked. We will get the Soviets whatever they they demand, whatever they require. We will send them. Um, it'd be yeah, there was, that wasn't always possible, but that was the actual stated policy. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. I'm Dr. John Moser professor of history at Ashland University and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. The MAG program is for teachers who want to master their craft by building content knowledge from original documents, from the words of those who lived and shaped our history, and not from textbooks or lectures. Our program is built around the discussion of original sources, and our faculty, both from both Ashland University and from across the country, is committed to this approach. 
We believe that the best way to get to know our past is to have a conversation with those who were there. James Madison, Frederick Douglass, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Theodore Roosevelt, and so many more. We offer two programs for working teachers and a broad selection of core and elective courses. You can learn more at tah.org slash programs. There is no evidence, I, 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 not that I've seen and, or, that, or that you have seen, that, that Hopkins was a, uh, a Soviet agent, but there were Soviet agents in the, uh, in the Roosevelt administration. What kind, of, what kind of impact did they have on uh, U.S. policy? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't claim to be necessarily an expert on this subject. There are a lot of great books on this, on people like Alger Hiss or, or Harry Dexter White, second in command of the Treasury. Um, I mean, both of them clearly played a role. And you can see Hiss, you know, even at Yalta, he's kind of actually, he's actually there present at the conference table, periodically intervening. I mean, there's an interesting book by Sergei Plochi, a Ukrainian-American, uh, Ukrainian-origin historian uh, who teaches at Harvard uh, about Yalta. Uh, title, I believe, is The Price of Peace. And of peace. You know, he, yeah, he makes an interesting point about uh, about his, you know, which is well taken, that there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence, for example, that he was kind of regularly meeting with his, his Soviet handlers at, at Yalta. I, I see that as kind of almost a little bit beside the point, a little bit like with Hopkins. I mean, look, if, you know, if, if he's not a big priority, he's not regularly meeting with him, it doesn't really matter. He's influencing policy. And the mm -hmm. same thing with Hopkins. You know, Hopkins, there's a little bit of a debate among the specialists. You know, is it possible Hopkins was this, what is Agent 59 or something? And mm -hmm. I don't think there's any conclusive evidence of that. Um, but, you know, Hopkins, you'll see him at Tehran. I mean, I have this uh, I have this kind of story in in, in the, the chapter on Tehran where he goes and he actually tells Churchill and the British at one point. You know that you know Roosevelt's mind is made up about about the the schedule for D-Day, about ruling other any operations in the Mediterranean, etc. And he says the Soviet view is equally adamant. I mean, he actually says this to the British. You know, he's sort of representing also the views of the, of the Soviet government. You know, which is not to say again he was a quote unquote agent or spy. That's to say he sympathized with them. He he basically took the position that Soviet needs were equally, if not more, important than American ones, and he advocated for that position quite openly. And he he didn't really hide it. Um, so again, whether or not he was a quote unquote agent, um, I mean, Harry Dexter White's another interesting example. And I talk about, among other things, his role in helping to draft the Morgenthau plan. And again, even there, uh, and there are other uh, Soviet agents we now know are working under him at the Treasury. There are a number of them who, had, at least at some point, either met with Soviet handlers, some of them ended up moving to, to work for Mao in China, that sort of thing. I mean, it's no longer a secret. We actually have the names, we have the receipts. But again, the the extent of their involvement, while interesting and I presume to some extent significant, um, you know, really in the end, I mean, Morgenthau himself was uh, the principal author of the Morgenthau plan, obviously with some help from Harry Dexter White and these others who were presumably manipulating him. Um, the same thing is true of Roosevelt. I mean, in the end, Roosevelt is the architect of, of these policies. Yes, Hopkins was giving him advice and influencing him. But no, I think in the end, important as as it is to some extent the role of these soviet agents they were kind of helping to shape the climate of opinion clearly but you know in the end the, the opinions were really shared by hopkins and roosevelt you know so that in the end that's what mattered i think more than the specific actions of of the soviet agents inside the u.s government so traditionally i think historians have paid a lot more attention to u.s assistance to the british of course the, the other great ally a great member of the, the what churchill called the grand alliance what did Churchill and other important British leaders think about the, the fact that the administration was paying so much, uh, was really dedicating so much to the to the Soviets? 
Well, I, I, it clearly frustrated them. Although, although again, to be fair, Churchill initially took just as strong a position in effectively reassigning Lenly Sade and famously sending over these 200 Hawker Hurricane fighters and lots of other fighter planes and things like aluminium or aluminum. Uh, aluminium is what, what they usually call it in British English to Stalin to support his war factory. So initially, I think in 41, Churchill really took a very similar position to Roosevelt. Look, we have the Soviets are in trouble. They're desperate. We absolutely must aid them. But it did become clear over the course of the war, particularly as British power and influence, I think, was beginning to wane. And particularly Tehran, where Roosevelt very openly lines up alongside Stalin and pretty much just agrees with Stalin on all key questions. And even, you know, will meet with Stalin privately, whereas he won't do that with, with Churchill. I think they're they're clearly frustrated by it. I mean, to me, the really striking aspect of this of this story is that a lot of people have asked me, for example, you know, was Roosevelt just naive? Was he a simpleton? Why did he support Stalin so seemingly unconditionally? You know, and I say he was he was clearly capable of a kind of Machiavellian real politic. It's just that's the way he behaved with Britain. I mean, it's kind of amazing. The deals that he would strike with Britain were far tougher. Um, I mean, the basis for for destroyers deal, for example, you know, effectively, Britain turns over almost the, the entire infrastructure of her empire in the Western Hemisphere in exchange for 50 pseudo decrepit World War One era destroyers um, insists on kind of full repayment. Um, they 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 absolutely insisted, uh, you know, well into the war that the whole point of the Lend-Lease Act, of course, was that Britain was not really legally able to raise funds on the U.S. money markets to pay for weapons purchases because Britain was held in default. The Johnson Act going back to 1934. And, and this is enforced rather strictly and ruthlessly. And the U.S. insisted on full repayment in interest. And, and, and even in, in 56, the Suez crisis, when Eisenhower kind of pulled the rug out from under the British once again, the U.S. was driving a hard bargain. Um, they drove a very hard bargain with Britain during the war. They drove a very hard bargain uh, at Tehran, where, where Churchill got almost none of what he asked for. Um, so I think Roosevelt was quite capable of, of being tough as a negotiator and taking a kind of a, a cold view of the U.S. strategic interests. But for some reason, it was always with Britain. Um, and with the Soviets, it was just like, I don't know, they, they put the rose color in his glasses and he could see nothing but... Uh, nothing but an angel in Stalin, you know, until very late in the war, you know, right at the end, he started to have maybe a few doubts about uh, whether or not he could really trust Stalin as a partner. So uh, a lot of historians uh, have also claimed, as as the Soviets did, that that the war in Europe was essentially won by the Soviets with, you know, a little, little bit of help from the West, that it was, it was overwhelmingly uh, a, a Soviet effort. How important was 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 U.S. assistance in allowing allow bringing about victory on the Eastern Front? Yeah, well, it's a very sensitive subject. I mean, even raising these questions in Russia today is quite sensitive. Um, there used to be a Lend-Lease Museum in Moscow to commemorate and at least give some level of gratitude to the Americans for all this. It was shut down a few years ago, and I ran into some trouble trying to get access to material in the archives because the subject of Lend-Lease is just almost taboo now in, in Russia, in part because they've been pushing this great patriotic war narrative. It's part of this kind of nationalist revival under, under Putin and so on, um, something I really don't want to hear, hear about. Um, 
And you can see why. I mean, it's a sensitive subject. During the war, for the most part, they didn't really want, they didn't want reporters, they, they didn't even want U.S. military attaches to have access to the front to see what the Soviets were doing with the equipment. I mean, it was, it was like getting blood from a stone just to try to get this information out, out of some of the Soviet archives. And I can't reveal all of my methods. And I obviously didn't, I didn't discover as much as I would have liked to, but I did get a lot of information about, for example, the incorporation of American, Canadian, and British tanks into, into Red Army armored formations on the Eastern Front, uh, the role of, of U.S. warplanes, in particular models such as the P-39 Era Cobra, the Kobrushka, as the Russians called it, or the A-20 Havoc bomber, the so-called Bostons, um, the Douglas aircraft. Um, as far as, you know, the, the general role, I mean, first of all, it was massive, and it wasn't just the finished equipment. That's what kind of got the headlines, uh, to some extent, the spam, to the extent they got any headlines at all, right? The spam or the Studebakers, the trucks or the Harley Davidson motorcycles. Um, sure, you could see why people would focus on that. But in fact, the U.S. is also sending vast quantities of what we might call either primary or secondary industrial outputs to the Soviet Union, everything from from chrome and steam, steel ball bearings, um, um, to, of course, processed, finished steel, armor plate, uh, aluminum was, I, I discovered, really almost one of the most vital materials, because although uh, most people understood that you needed aluminum in that era, we didn't have these kind of modern composites in air, aircraft construction. Mm -hmm. The Soviets also used it for their tanks, particularly the most famous ones like the T-34 and the KV series heavy tanks. Um, and the Soviets, the, the, the German invasion knocked out 60% of Soviet aluminum production you know everything from the bauxite mining to the smelting a lot of the smelting was done in ukraine a lot of supply came from further north you know the german invasion the germans knew they knew where all this stuff was i mean they they had the, these economic and trade deals with the soviets going back to the early 1920s so they knew where all this stuff was and they they knocked out huge percentages of soviet agricultural production um soviet mineral production, Soviet mining, even energy, coal, uh, manganese, steel. And in the Baltic area alone, they knocked out pretty much the entire complex for Red Army kind of uniform and boot supply, uh, basically everything that would have actually equipped and, and clothed the Red Army. So it wasn't just that the U.S. fed the Red Army, literally, with, again, everyone has heard of the Spam or the Tusonka pork products. But they were sending everything from, you know, dehydrated milk and eggs to dehydrated borscht, you know, millions of packets of this tiny little dehydrated borscht. Uh, the Soviets are getting like 70 percent of their sugar from the Americans by 1943 and 1944. So they're feeding the Red Army. They're also clothing the Red Army, the boots and the uniforms. I mean, all of that came from the Americans, um, you know, effectively free of charge. Eventually, there was a kind of a settlement in, in 1951, about two pennies on the dollar or something. I mean, it was just... It was, a, a, a minimal, a minimal token repayment for all of this generous aid. Um, and the Soviets, of course, they didn't want to talk about it. They downplayed it in their own press. It was only when a U.S. ambassador like Stanley in 43 would make a stink about it that the Soviets would finally even allow, let's say, an AP reporter to go investigate some of what was happening. Um, I mean, the trucks alone, I mean, this is an extraordinary story. The so-called the, the CKD are completely knocked down trucks, you know, which are all sent sort of in this, you know, this kind of like knocked down pack package and then they had to be reconstructed they could have done even more but stalin didn't want engineers on soviet territory and so they had to reconstruct a lot of them in iran where a lot of the equipment is going of course a lot of it's going to vladivostok the the pacific Glen lease it's just this amazing and, and even bizarre story because it's, it's going right through japanese territorial waters and the japanese are not harassing or molesting these liberty ships in part because they just transferred title to the Soviet Union. So they're now Soviet ships. But it's also because the Japanese said, well, if you really want to send all this war equipment to the Soviets, you're not 
not going to use it against us. That's fine. Go ahead. Because the Soviets aren't bothering us. They're they're fully you know loyal to their neutrality pact yeah. with us. Um, it's just an amazing story. Actually, it was talking about that that got me in trouble with the Russian government. Strangely enough, uh, I did an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about the Soviet-Japanese neutrality pact and Lend-Lease and the fact that that the Soviets are literally arresting U.S. pilots who crash land on Soviet territory and sending them to labor camps during the war. That's what got me in trouble. That's what got me denounced by the the Russian foreign ministry a couple of years right. ago. Sure. Now, so you you think it, it's you know, have they? ask you to engage in counterfactual history for a moment. Could the Soviet Union have won the war on its own? Well, I mean, it's 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 a, a, what you could see the Soviets surviving. I mean, a kind of a level of, of partisan resistance, perhaps falling back to the Ural Mountains. Uh, but you know, we shouldn't forget just how close uh, they came to going under, at least as far as Moscow. Sure, they'd evacuated some of the factories and had begun. They'd actually evacuated evacuated the government to, you know, to Kuybyshev, uh, as they called it in Samara. They, they had actually evacuated the government. Stalin and his general stayed behind, which turned out to be significant. And he does obviously deserve some credit for the staying, staying behind in Moscow and kind of rallying morale and eventually resuscitating patriotic themes and, and also even kind of rehabilitating the Orthodox Church, all that traditional part of the story. I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some merit to it. Um, but if you'll forget just how close they were to going under in October 1941. And that's part of the reason why the Lend-Lease story is, is so sensitive, because if you look at, let's say, the Battle of Moscow, you know, my own view is that Stalin having this great intel on the Pacific and realizing that Japan had already resolved to attack the U.S. and British and was not going to bother him. And this allowed him to transfer massive amounts of, of armor from the Soviet Far East. That definitely was significant in enabling survival. But so, too, was the U.S. supply, particularly things like trucks. Um, the warplanes weren't yet really engaged on the battlefield at the Battle of Moscow, but the tanks were. And again, this is one of those things that they didn't want to talk about the fact that they had these then it wasn't really american tanks yet it was mostly matilda and valentine tanks coming from mm. britain and canada but they absolutely played a role in the battle of moscow mm. you know so i i think that absent even that early level of aid and then of course you get forward towards stalingrad and kursk it becomes even more dramatic you know i discovered a letter in the german military archives you know from a general writing home to his wife and he's pretty high-ranking general he's very well informed about the battle and he said more than half of the vehicles in these new armored units, these new armored Soviet units are American manufactured. Um, the Germans noticed it, you know, they they knew how significant this was already at Stalingrad. And you can see it already in the Soviet Air Force. You can see it on the ground. Again, even the tanks, and so it's always claimed, oh, but we have this magical T-34 tank, which was obviously, it was a good tank. I mean, it had certain drawbacks and so on. Um, but in fact, you know, as late as, say, 1944, Operation Bagration, where the Soviets are rolling up a lot of what is now Belarus, um, in the active parts of the sector, you know, you're actually talking about a pretty significant part of the tank park, as much as 25, 30 percent was actually, uh, and by that point, it was actually more American than British and Canadian. Uh, there were tanks built entirely to spec for, you know, for for Soviet armor. There were warplanes where the U.S. is basically sending them to the Soviets, not even really using them themselves. Yeah. So uh, this this relationship of of, of giving the giving the Russians anything they uh, everything not only everything they needed but everything they wanted uh, ends pretty soon after uh, after the war. This makes me ask: What impact did the death of FDR and the accession of of uh, of Harry Truman to the Oval Office? How much difference did that make? 
Well, it's a great question. I, I should first of all distinguish between the European and the Asian theaters, because while it is true that Truman took this somewhat controversial, at least from the Soviet perspective, decision to, to curtail Lend-Lease aid to Europe after, of course, the war in Europe was over with VE Day, you know, May 8, 1945, and the Soviets were, were livid about that. The aid to the Pacific actually stepped up even higher levels that spring and summer. It's kind of an amazing story that even as the Pacific War is reaching its bloody climax, you know, the U.S. sends more than 4 million metric tons of war materiel just in the last basically 14 months of the Pacific War. And it ramps up, particularly in the summer, in part because the U.S. had agreed the previous fall to essentially supply and provision Stalin's Far Eastern armies if and when they would ever enter the war against Japan. The U.S. effectively agreed you know, that, that, that it would pay for and supply and equip the Soviet Far Eastern armies. And by then they had sent more than 8.2 million metric tons of war material to Vladivostok. And a lot of the planes flown in from Alaska, the so-called Alcib aid, of course, they're all landing there in Soviet air bases in the Far East. So nearly all of the fuel, almost all of the motor vehicles, almost all of the warplanes, the tanks, again, the percentage is a little lower, you know, with the tanks, it's, you know, it's kind of not the dramatic portion, but still a lot of the tanks were also American, but all the fuel for the tanks and nearly all the supplies and the ammunition and the boots and the uniforms and the foodstuffs, they're all supplied by the U.S. taxpayer. So Truman is then in a really interesting position where on the one hand, I think he does want to be a bit more critical. He doesn't want to just assume everything. And in fact, at Potsdam, once he learns that the U.S. has uh, detonated this kind of successful test of the atomic bomb, um, and he learns this, he does, to some extent, exclude Stalin from the Potsdam Declaration, which is the U.S., Britain, and China, sort of something of an ultimatum to the Japanese. Now, the way I look at that and the way I describe it in the book, I mean, Truman was trying to take a kind of a harder position on Asia. But both his hands were already tied, both because he had not jettisoned the unconditional surrender policy that Roosevelt had announced, meaning there couldn't really be realistic negotiations. He thought maybe he had a way out with the atomic bomb that maybe he could bring an end to the war before the Soviets intervened. But effectively, he set up this kind of almost like a race. The Soviets had to speed up their own timetable now because they knew about the atomic bomb. They wanted to make sure they entered the war before Japan surrendered. Um, Truman had effectively then kind of set up this race where the U.S. was funding and arming both sides, I mean, both competitors, because the Soviet armies are entirely U.S. taxpayer aided, funded, supplied. And the U.S. is also trying to end the war with Japan absent Soviet intervention. And so on the one hand, you can see why the Soviets view this all kind of, oh, well, the Americans are sort of conspiring to keep us out of the war. Well, sure, but, you know, they had been completely loyal to Japan for four years. In fact, not a lot of people know this, but after the first atomic bomb was was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan actually petitioned the Soviets to mediate for peace because right. they still had an agreement with the Soviet Union. So to some extent, by almost like excluding the Soviets from the Potsdam Declaration, Truman had had kind of tied his own hands, or you might you might say almost kind of like outsmarted himself, you know, that Japan would not surrender so long as they thought the Soviets might be neutral. Of course, Soviets did not want neutrality. Stalin wanted a war. He desperately wanted a war in Asia so that the Red Army could, you know, push the boundaries of communism forward into Manchuria, North China, Korea, etc., which effectively, Roosevelt had already agreed to let him do that. He had already divided Asia up to these spheres of influence, first to Tehran, and then he had also added Korea, Yalta. Um, so Stalin kind of thought he had a green light, and then Truman at the last minute almost tried to keep him out of it, and so he just accelerated the timetable. 
Mm-hmm. And in the end, I mean, they literally start the war just with within hours of the dropping of the second atomic bomb on Nagasaki. You know, they're they're absolutely desperate to get in it in time, you know, before it's over. Um, and they do kind of it's like a just in time war for Stalin, where they do get yeah. this excuse to push down. And, you know, by then, Japan was not completely defeated. But a lot of the the armor and the troops had already been transferred back to the home islands as many as a million soldiers. So it was much easier. To, in some ways, Stalin's foreign policy works out perfectly in Asia, whereas, you know, in, in Europe, the Soviet got bloodied up pretty badly, you know, whereas right. in Asia, the casualty levels are much, much lower because his his masterful diplomacy is just kind of created this perfect opportunity for him. So I, I don't know, we're running out of time. I, I, I don't know how comfortable you are talking about uh, talking about current policies. Uh, do, does 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 this period of history give us any kind of, of, of insight into what's going on now? Are there lessons that we can glean from uh, from the events of 75 years ago? Well, I mean, there are certain analogies which stand out, um, not so much, let's say, the end of the Pacific War, but the Finnish War is one that I've often heard bandied about as a possible analogy of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a war which kind of bogs down quickly, doesn't seem to be going particularly well. What I did try to remind people of was that although the Soviet the Soviets were somewhat embarrassed in the Finnish War, they did win it in the end. You know, that's the other thing you have to remember about the Russians. I mean, I talk a lot about the importance of Lend-Lease aid in the book, but to some extent, the performance of of the Red Army, and I think the modern Russian army is, you know, is a kind of a a leaner, you know, it's not as obviously enormous, it's a leaner version of this. Um, it tends to have the same strengths and weaknesses, you know, it's not particularly good or sophisticated when it comes to kind of air power and sophisticated combined arm operations. Um, on the other hand, uh, Artillery is clearly a strength. Uh, the, what the Germans call Materialschlacht is also a strength. You know, in the end, I mean, the Finns just kind of ran out of men and they they ran out of, of weapons and the Soviets just overwhelmed them by kind of sheer mass. Um, that's not exactly what's happening in Ukraine, but, you know, there are probably parallels as far as, as the military equation. That is to say, in the end, you know, Russia has a larger population. She has shorter supply lines you know ukraine has to rely really on the west for her arms um and those kind of immediate proximate proximate advantages are playing out on the battlefield where even if it looks like russia's kind of been embarrassed the russians are sort of grinding it out you know we shouldn't forget the sure i talk about the importance of lindley say but it was in the end it was you know russian soldiers not just russian but all the various nationalities of the soviet union who brought who brought home that that victory in the eastern front um i think you know, they're less reliant now i mean that's that's maybe a contrast you know, they're not reliant, really, aside from some aid from from China and, you know, a little bit from Iran and a few other countries. For the most part, Russia is relying on her own supply and, you know, her own factories now. As far as U.S. foreign policy, again, I I know some people might read my book and say, oh, well, you know, he's so critical of Stalin, you know, probably he'll see Putin as, as Stalin. I, I don't really. I mean, I, I don't think Russia is a, is a power on, on the global scale that the, the USSR was in 1945. I think to me the lesson the lesson in US foreign policy should be one more of caution that is that we don't always understand what the consequences of our actions are um you know that is to say we need to think more clearly about about the real national interest um you know that is whether it's lend-lease aid in 41 or you know what's going on with our asian policy vis-a-vis the soviets in japan in 45 I don't think people usually think through these policies and their possible consequences. I'll give you an example. So possible consequences of the U.S., you know, kind of fighting this proxy war in Ukraine. 
did, did people, you know, let's say the Biden administration consider uh, a year ago that we might be driving Russia and China closer together? Um, that, you know, there there were some real possible drawbacks to, you know, to this war. Uh, I, I just think that we should read history, not necessarily for, for pat lessons on what to do or what not to do, but to some extent as a cautionary tale to, to see what can go wrong. Well, thank you so much, Sean McMeekin. This has been a, a wonderful conversation, simply fascinating. Uh, it, it, the, the extent to which the United States was, a, was an active participant in the Soviet rise to world power. Yeah, we don't need to, we will look for pat lessons in the past, but, but of course there's, there's a great deal we could learn. So uh, again, thank you for joining us and thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks for having me on, John. It was a great pleasure.